I must be permitted to say that I have been almost overwhelmed by the announcement of the sad event which has so recently occurred. I feel incompetent to perform duties so important and responsible as those which have been so unexpectedly thrown upon me. The best energies of my life have been spent endeavoring to establish and perpetuate the principles of free government, and I believe that the government, in passing through its present perils, will settle down upon principles consonant with popular rights more permanent and enduring than heretofore. I must be permitted to say, if I understand the feelings of my own heart, that I have long labored to ameliorate and alleviate the condition of the great mass of the American people. In conclusion, gentlemen, let me say I want your encouragement and continuance. I shall ask and rely upon you and others in carrying the government through its present perils. I feel in making this request that it will be heartedly responded to by you and all other patriots and lovers of rights and interests of free people. This was part of now President Andrew Johnson's speech to the American people following the assassination of his predecessor, Abraham Lincoln. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. As we ended last episode, on April 14, 1865, just five days following Lee's surrender at Appomattox, President Lincoln was shot. On the evening of the 14th, Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd, departed from the White House to attend a performance of the comedic production of Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater in Washington. The Lincolns arrived late and were seated in a private box overlooking the stage. Joining the first family was Army officer Henry Rathbone, and Rathbone's fiancée, Clara Harris. The president was enjoying the production and seemed to be laughing immensely at the jokes, though the laughs that filled the theater would infamously turn to screams. At 10.15, deranged actor John Wilkes Booth entered the president's box and fired a 44 caliber gun into the back of Lincoln's head. Officer Henry Rathbone stabbed Booth in the shoulder before Booth jumped from the box, landing on the stage and breaking his leg, shouting, Si semper tyrannis, a Latin phrase meaning thus always to tyrants, a motto suggesting that bad will always come to tyrants. As Booth fled the theater, the president sat slumped in his chair as the first lady screamed. The paralyzed president was quickly moved to a home across from the theater and was soon visited by the Surgeon General, who announced Lincoln would likely not make it through the night. After being visited by some of his friends and Vice President Johnson, Lincoln was declared dead on the morning of April 15, 1865. Lincoln's body was placed in a flag-draped coffin and moved to the White House, where his cross-country funeral procession was planned. Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, went into hiding prompting one of the largest manhunts in U.S. history, 
with more than 10,000 soldiers searching for the now-despised actor. Booth had been a supporter of the Confederacy, though he always lived in the Union throughout the war. In March of 1865, Booth and his co-conspirators hatched a plan to kidnap Lincoln and bring him to Richmond, where they believed he would surrender. Booth's plan failed when Lincoln did not arrive at the location they assumed he would be going. Just weeks after Booth's failed attempt to bring Lincoln to the Confederate capital, Richmond fell and Lee surrendered, leaving Booth desperate to think of a new plan to save the Confederacy. Booth's plan began to unfold when he got word the president would be viewing a play in Ford's theater. Just 11 days following Lincoln's death, Booth and his accomplice, David Harold, were found hiding out in a Virginia barn. Federal agents surrounded the barn and were able to get Harold to surrender himself, leaving Booth in the barn alone. In an effort to force Booth out, soldiers lit the barn on fire, trapping Booth in the quickly spreading blaze. Booth moved around the barn, and Federal Agent Sergeant Boston Corbett took aim and shot, supposedly after seeing Booth raise a gun at him. Booth, being paralyzed, was dragged out and died just hours later. With the President now killed and the nation just barely together, if at all, celebrations of Northern victory were quickly dashed by the same feelings of uncertainty the nation had felt just weeks before. Upon arriving back in Massachusetts on May 3, 1865, following his trip south with other abolitionists where he had learned of Lincoln's death, Wilson delivered a eulogy for the slain president to the New England Historical and Genealogical Society. Wilson remarked that, quote, The nation has failed to comprehend fully the character of Abraham Lincoln in all its proportions, but now that he has suddenly fallen, the people are beginning to do justice towards their fallen leader. He will pass into history as the foremost man of the age. End quote. It's important to remember that at the time before his death, Lincoln was marginally popular. He narrowly won the election of 1864 and was criticized by all sides and by varying men, including Henry Wilson. Reflecting on Lincoln's heroic image today, Wilson's contemporaneous eulogy rings true and prophetic. In the wake of Lincoln's death, of course, that was a tragedy of, of unimaginable scope. Here is U.S. Senate historian Betty Coed. And uh, Wilson had worked very closely, as had many of his colleagues, and was devastated by Lincoln's death. The city of Washington, D.C. went into deep mourning. Um, the Capitol building itself was draped in funereal drapery, and and uh, there were many services held. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lincoln lay in state in the Capitol for a while, and before being re before being returned to Illinois for burial, and so it was an extended period of mourning. But there was also a period of great concern as they transitioned from the Abraham Lincoln to the Andrew Johnson presidency. Uh, many of the radical Republicans, and Wilson was one of them, were encouraged that 
Andrew Johnson had been a strong supporter of many of their policies during the war years. And so they looked at it with some um, positive anticipation. So it's a, t it's a time of mourning after Lincoln's death, but it's also this important time of transition that goes from war to reconstruction, from the Lincoln administration to the Johnson administration, and for members of Congress to go to a time period when they have to consider not only how they will repair the, the union, but how will they bring the Southern states back into the union and back to representation in Congress? Um, how are they gonna manage that monumental task becomes one of the key issues of that post-Lincoln assassination time period. With millions of formerly enslaved blacks now free, Wilson knew the Senate's work going forward would not be easy and with a new man in the most powerful position in government, Congress pondered how they could work together. The new president, Andrew Johnson, had only been vice president for a little over a month before being thrust into the presidency. So Andrew Johnson is, a, is an interesting figure. That's the voice of professor and author Robert S. Levine. Hi, Lincoln. I am Robert Levine. I'm Distinguished University Professor of English at the University of Maryland, and I have a recent book on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson that looks closely at the role of Frederick Douglass and other Black activists. In the coming episodes, Professor Levine will help guide us through the Johnson presidency and the evolution of his relationship with radical Republicans. He's a politician in Tennessee. He um, was working class. He started out as a tailor. He started out with small political jobs. By the late 1850s, he became senator from Tennessee. What's really interesting about him for a Southerner is that he was opposed to the secession. Um, he thought the South had done wrong by leaving the Union. He referred to Jefferson Davis and others as traitors. Around 1862, he declared that slavery should be abolished. This is also kind of unusual for a Southern politician. And Andrew Johnson himself, during the 1850s, had a few house slaves in Tennessee. So he had bought into the slavery system. Lincoln found him appealing because he was a Southerner who was opposed to the secession and opposed to slavery. He named him military governor of Tennessee. And when Lincoln was up for reelection in 1864, Lincoln and others thought that Andrew Johnson might help him win what they feared would be a close election by offering some sectional balance. So um, Lincoln's vice president, Hamlin Hill, had been from, was from Maine. And they thought that Johnson would really help them. And, and I think that Johnson and Lincoln shared a lot in the way they viewed the Civil War and the way they viewed slavery. And then when Johnson becomes president, things start to change. As military governor of Tennessee, Johnson prided himself on being a passionate advocate for black rights and a robust enemy of slavery. In a speech in October 1864, Johnson, acting as military governor, 
spoke passionately to a crowd of black citizens in Tennessee, saying, quote, Colored men of Nashville, you all have heard of the President's proclamation by which he announces to the world that the slaves in a large portion of the seceded states were thenceforth and forever free. For certain reasons, which seemed wise to the President, the benefits of that proclamation did not extend to you or to your native state. Many of you, consequently, were left in bondage. The taskmaster's scourge was not yet broken, and the fetters still galled your limbs. Gradually, this iniquity has been passing away, but the hour has come when the last vestiges of it must be removed. Consequently, I, too, without reference to the President or any other person, have a proclamation to make, and standing here upon the steps of the Capitol, with the past history of the State to witness, the present condition to guide, and its future to encourage me, I, Andrew Johnson, do hereby declare freedom for every man in Tennessee. End quote. Following his statement of emancipation, which I should note he did not have the authority to make, listeners in the mostly black crowd began to declare Johnson as their Moses, to which Johnson responded, quote, Humble and unworthy as I am, if no other better shall be found, I will indeed be your Moses, and lead you through the Red Sea of war and bondage to a fairer future of liberty and peace. I speak now as one who feels the world his country, and all who love equal rights his friends. I speak too as a citizen of Tennessee. I am here on my own soil, and here I mean to stay and fight this great battle of truth and justice to a triumphant end. Rebellion and slavery shall, by God's help, no longer pollute our state. Loyal men, whether white or black, shall alone control her destinies. And when this strife, in which we are all engaged, is past, I trust, I know, we shall have a better state of things, and shall all rejoice that honest labor reaps the fruit of its own industry, and that every man has a fair chance in the race of life." End quote. With many believing, Johnson had proved himself to be a strong advocate for the cause of the millions of freed black Americans. Republicans were open to work with the new president with some even believing Johnson would support them more than Lincoln. So when Johnson became president, most of the radical Republicans thought he would be a great president because he had this history of um, opposing the Confederacy and coming out against slavery. Johnson met with people like Charles Sumner in the first month when he was president. Charles Sumner was convinced that Johnson would do everything he wanted, which included giving black people, former slave and slave people, the right to vote. May 29th, 1865, Andrew Johnson issues an amnesty proclamation in which he's basically saying, I'm, I'm not gonna talk about the Southerners as, as having seceded, and I'm not gonna worry about former Confederates being part of state or national government and the radical Republicans felt betrayed. So you have about a one month period when things seem to be going well, then you have this amnesty proclamation, and then it, it takes about six months before the radicals really turn on 
Johnson. Before Lincoln's death, Wilson had been working to get him to support Clara Barton's organization searching for missing soldiers. Lincoln approved of Barton's work and provided the War Department to support her efforts. Wilson had remained close with Barton throughout the war and continued to be her principal ally in the Senate. When Barton's funds ran dry, Wilson pushed for her postage to be covered by the War Department and to no avail attempted to find her a job in the federal government, gifting her $20 as a Christmas gift. Barton continued her advocacy for the soldier and continued to call upon Wilson's help. We will continue to look at Barton's work in coming episodes. Wilson held strong views of enfranchising black voters in the South and working towards legal equality for black Americans across the nation. Wilson sought for and supported an act in 1865 that would retroactively pay black soldiers for their unequal pay throughout the war, with Wilson remarking upon its passage, quote, At last, justice has been done, end quote. Beyond the moral and political questions that arose with emancipation, there were many logistical concerns as well. Where were these millions of freedmen to go for food, for shelter, for work? The white ruling class of the South would certainly offer no assistance. To work towards taking care of some of these concerns, in 1865, Wilson was central in pushing for the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau a government administration with the mission to take care of the millions of newly freed people in the South. As early as 1863, Massachusetts Representative T.D. Eliot proposed a bill to organize an executive organization to answer the questions for the conditions of post-war black freedmen. Between 1864 and 65, the House and Senate sent bills back and forth, and debates swirled over what a Freedmen's Bureau would actually do and look like. Proponents of the bill argued that an organization was needed to help support the displaced blacks who had nothing to their names, no wealth, no property, and no ability to get work. Opponents of the bill argued that radicals were seizing on the opportunity to advance racial politics in the United States, essentially that the administration would seek to make the inch of emancipation into a mile of equality. Opponents also argued that the bill was unfair as it focused on supporting black Americans and that white Americans had not received the same support throughout history. While it's true that white Americans had not been given this support, there were great differences in the economic, political, and social structure and treatment of the two races. Whites had never been enslaved and treated so mercilessly to the same degree that blacks were in the United States. Freed blacks had absolutely nothing to base their life on after freedom. They had no property to pass down, no wealth from labor, and difficult prospects of even getting a job that would pay meager amounts once enslavement had been ended. These inequities came even before the Black Codes, which we'll discuss moving forward. By March 1865, Members of the House and Senate came to an agreement and moved to pass the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau, though the act stipulated the administration could only operate 
up to one year following the war's end. Wilson's chief objective, to obtain more political equality for the newly freed men of the South, was through suffrage. Wilson believed if all the formerly enslaved people of the South could vote, black citizens could gain more power and influence in their affairs and destiny, while also drowning out white racist votes that sought to suppress them. Though suffrage seemed like a straightforward mission, Wilson and his colleagues faced many difficulties. Enfranchising black Americans was not as simple as passing a law or an amendment as blacks legally did not have citizenship in the United States, meaning states could lawfully reject even the premise that black Americans should vote. Wilson believed that the only way the nation would heal and truly be unified was once the black race was fully enfranchised with respect, equality, and equity. In a speech in June 1865, Wilson hearkened back to his early days visiting Washington and witnessing the horrors of slavery for the first time, emphasizing his commitment to seeing the goal of black equality come to fruition after so many years of fighting. President Johnson's plan for Reconstruction did not include black suffrage, creating a slight rift between the president and the more radical wing of the Republican Party. Senator Sumner, always one to ruffle feathers, bothered Wilson with his sharp attacks against the president's refusal to support suffrage. Wilson wrote to Sumner, quote, We have a president who does not go as far as we do in the right direction, but we have him and cannot change him, and we had better stand by the administration and endeavor to bring it right. If it finally turns against our course, then we must follow where our principles lead, whether to victory or to temporary defeat." End quote. Wilson and Johnson planned to meet on September 14, 1865. Wilson sought to build a bridge with the president, whom he and others hoped and believed would work with congressional Republicans to make progress in the South. Both men came to the meeting knowing the other held a contrasting view when it came to the issue of suffrage. Democrats found Wilson to be overly authoritative and rude in his calls for black equality. Both Johnson and Wilson came to the meeting knowing it could be tense, but wanting to avoid any drama. The newspapers and radicals on both sides likely hoped the opposite. As Wilson met with Johnson, Sumner gave a stirring speech against the administration at the Republican Convention in Massachusetts. Sumner's views of contempt against the president were not yet reflected throughout the party, as Republicans were more focused on reuniting the South. Newspapers held differing takeaways with Wilson's meeting, though Wilson later said his meeting with Johnson showed the president had a similar vision to Republicans, though their greatest difference rested in timing. Other Republicans who held meeting with Johnson noted similar sentiments. The one point where radicals and Johnson surely differed was over the issue of suffrage. Wilson, unlike Sumner, believed the best way to achieve their goals would not be through opposing Johnson, but through working to convince him. In January 1866, with much progress being produced by the Freedmen's Bureau, Illinois Senator Lyman Trumbull, with the support of Wilson, introduced amendments to the Freedmen's Bureau Act to extend the provisions beyond the one-year point after the war and to also expand the Bureau's programs 
to the states beyond just the former Confederates. The Senate passed the bill on January 25th, and just a couple weeks later the House followed suit, sending the bill to the now suspiciously viewed President Johnson. To the shock of radical Republicans, Johnson vetoed the bill, arguing it infringed on states' rights and favored one group over another, similar arguments to those in Congress during the bill's debate. Both houses failed to override the veto, and so the fate of the Freedmen's Bureau seemed to fade. Though many Republicans stood with Johnson throughout 1865, this would strike the final blow to their productive coexistence. So you have this figure of Johnson as very popular among some of the radicals, among Black people, including, I think, Frederick Douglass. And then things started to change. So by the end of 1865, there's a sense of betrayal. And you can see that everywhere. You can see that in African-American newspapers, such as the Christian Recorder, which was the newspaper of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and a really significant cultural organ. They liked Johnson for the first six months or so. Then they start seeing him as a person who betrayed them. And the radical Republicans realize that they're going to have to formulate their own policies without the help of Johnson. So things become very contentious by late 1865, early 1866, as it seems to me, Johnson pivots back to having sympathies for the South and as Johnson's racism becomes more of a determining factor. In October 1865, Wilson, busy campaigning across the North for Republicans, rushed home to Natick to celebrate his 25th wedding anniversary on October 27th. Over 400 guests from around the nation poured into his and neighbors' homes to celebrate. The Boston Railroad Line furnished special cars to transport guests to Natick. Henry and Harriet were gifted a large set of silver flatware and silverware from the people of Natick, worth around $4,000, though $73,000 in today's dollars. The Wilsons were also gifted more than $3,000 in cash, which Harriet would use to purchase stock of the company building the Pacific Railroad. While the couple celebrated, they also missed their son, Henry Hamilton, who was still stationed in Texas. After the festivities had ended, Wilson jumped back on a train and got to work campaigning for a more equal and just nation, just as he had wanted to do on the night of their wedding two and a half decades before. In today's episode, we covered Lincoln's assassination, the nation's reaction, President Johnson and his views and relationship with Republicans, the Freedmen's Bureau, and the deteriorating relationship between Johnson and Republicans. Thank you to U.S. Senate historian Betty Coed and Professor Robert S. Levine, the author of The Failed Promise, Reconstruction, Frederick Douglass, and the Impeachment of Andrew Johnson. We'll hear more from Professor Levine as we continue into the Johnson presidency. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're listening to.
check out henrywilsonhistory.com for more information and for the newly added Henry Wilson and the Civil War store, where you can purchase stickers or support the show. If you have any questions or comments, please shoot an email to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to continuing to explore the era of Reconstruction.